Hi, I'm Dave Ferguson, pastor of the Collegedale Church here on the campus of Southern Adventist University. Welcome to our podcast. We're going to explore today some of the relevant words of Jesus Christ in Scripture to my life, to your life. So enjoy the message. Happy Sabbath, happy Sabbath, happy Sabbath. Can I just say how delightful it is to be in a church family that has such vibrant young adults who have their gifts that they're willing to give to Jesus. It is thrilling to be participating with you. Um, And I just have to say, over these last couple of weeks, uh, probably the last three weeks, we've been talking about the sanctuary, We've we've been working our way along, and I've just been so gratified by the conversations I'm always interested kind of in the the, the sprawl of the conversations. And on the one hand, I've had so many just just affirming and thoughtful conversations with individuals who probably have traveled and journeyed a ways in their Christian walk and are uh, seasoned veterans of the family of faith. And uh, they're sharing how God is speaking to them through the study of things like the sanctuary and God's sacrifice. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I've had such vibrant and amazing and just uh, thrilling conversations with college students and individuals. Oh man, this is, this is filling my life and my mind with stories of Jesus that are, that are life-changing. And so I, I just love this. Thank you for participating and being involved in worship here today as we continue in the book of Job. Life and death. Life and death is the title of our time together. As we get started, I just want to share a little point of vulnerability with you. Uh, I am a somewhat private individual, but I'm not terribly secretive. I see that as a, those two things as being a little different. Uh, and I believe in the, the, the family of Christ, our church family, and the power of prayer. I want to keep this in, in balance in terms of it not being uh, overly serious, but I just thought I would share with you, uh, back in November of this last year, going through my physical, some things occurred with some of my blood work that caused them to look around a little bit and decided, you know what, our advice to you is we think you should have your gallbladder removed. Okay, um, let's talk about that a little bit more. Uh, so on Monday, I'm going to have a minor, it's, uh, it's a little uh, robotic surgery, um, having my gallbladder removed. And I will be out of commission. I've given myself a two-week window to kind of get all healed up. I've got to talk to others who've had, anybody here have your gallbladder removed, by the way? By a raise of hand, I see some hands, yeah. Uh, so we could, of course, have, we could talk, but uh, I, I've had some say to me, oh, it's nothing, it's nothing. I've had some others say, you know what, there's some pain that you're not actually kind of prepared for in that, that they kind of fill your chest cavity up with a little bit of gas so that you can separate the different, and that can be a little uncomfortable and, you, you know, different sorenesses and that sort of thing, but, but it's all manageable. I don't want us to kind of overthink or overworry, but, you know, no surgery is exactly how you would uh, have thought you would be living your life. And so I invite you into that part of my life and prayer. Over these next two weeks, I'm going to just kind of lie low, make sure I heal up, and everything will be fine. But I wanted to share that with you. I also just would like to say, because if you're like me, I want to know when I hear about somebody going through something, you know, what can I do? What can I do to be helpful? And I am aware now that sometimes what I do to be helpful actually is not exactly helpful. Sometimes I can do things to serve another person, creating a situation where they now have to serve me, right? So I just want to say to you, I'm going to be well taken care of by my wife. My daughter is here from Michigan, my son. Uh, you know, so things like a food train or that, you, you're probably not going to be creating food for me anyway, right? Because I'm going to be adjusting my diet initially and all that sort of thing. We're well taken care of. Here's what you can do. One, keep us, keep us in prayer that this is all as expected and then if you want to write a, a note or if you want to write an email or send a text, just understand I may or may not look at that for two weeks. If that's, if that's okay with you, then that's perfect with me as well. Um, and and we'll, we'll journey on together again. I am fully confident it's a decision born out of calculation, not fear, so we're in good shape. Last week, I shared with you, if you were here, a little bit about these panels that are these glass panels, that there's Morse code in them. We, we talked about uh, one of these panels over here that expresses the words, the death of Christ. I, I've gotten more on this. 
a number of different individuals sent me different things, but it, Dr. Ken Shaw and I were, the, he was the one who shared that with me, which incidentally, side note, he has accepted coming to be the president of our university, and we're really excited about that. If by chance he's watching or listening in the future, welcome. We're so glad about that. Well, he and I were talking, and he's the one who had kind of brought this up, that as a student here around 1980, that he would come and he would kind of relax in the pews, looking up at these windows, and he would try to decode the Morse code. And so after having talked about this, he sent me something from his brother Kevin, who in 1983 came back to the sanctuary and studied all these panels. What, what's up here, you should know, on these panels, and they're mostly, the Morse code is mostly down the little edges, the sides, dots and dashes. Um, and it's the 27 fundamental beliefs and some scriptures. So in fact, we've been talking about the sanctuary. There's, there's a panel up there that says the sanctuary. I want to show you a couple of pictures. This right here, uh, that panel, which is back, I believe it is the third panel back here from the balcony. So if you're way in the front, you're not going to see it terribly well unless you look at the screen. But down the edge of this panel, it says death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. And by the way, as we talked about or started this, this time together, we said life and death. This is not going to be a sermon about death. It's going to be a sermon about life and death. Have you ever had somebody say that? Oh my goodness, it's, it's not like it's life and death. Well, this is big stuff. Thank goodness it's death and resurrection. It's life and death. And that talking about death as a Christian changes entirely because of the resurrection. Uh, by the way, next week, okay, I won't be, I won't be continuing on here, but, but Elder Ed Wright, our former conference president, elder of our church, is going to be sharing God's word with you, and he's going to be talking about the subject of creation. And once you know it, right over here, let's see, it's right here, the third panel over there. That one, that third panel in Morse code says creation. Dots and dashes embedded in our, we, we're getting light through these windows. We're getting light through these principles, light through these words. And you may not have even realized it, but it's proclaiming the creation. In two Sabbaths, Don Pate, I'm sorry, I think I've got, uh, yeah, 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 there we go. It's the fifth panel up there from the balcony. The second one that has a lot of orange in it in the back there, that one says Sabbath. And Don Pate, another retired pastor who's joined our church family as one of our elders, is going to be sharing on the subject of the Sabbath on that particular day. But today we go forward with life and death. Maybe you've heard it said before, you might have attributed it or somebody else attributed this to Mark Twain, or if they really know what they're talking about, they go, no, no, Mark Twain was quoting Benjamin Franklin, but if they know what they're talking about, they'd realize that it's not even Benjamin Franklin that first said, tis impossible to be sure of anything but death and taxes. Christopher Bullock in 1716 wrote that in one of his books, tis impossible to be certain of anything but death and taxes, too difficult not wished for elements. But could it be that there's something even more certain than death and taxes? In fact, we can't talk about death without talking about life. But this, James chapter 4 verse 14 says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Some versions of scripture say, you are but a vapor in the wind, coming and going. Now, I don't know, you guys, you're young enough, you don't think about this stuff, but some of the rest of us, we've been down the road a little bit, and we start to think. You bury your grandparents, and then your parents, and you start to realize you're next. Truth is, though, you very well may have been at the funeral of a friend, gone unexpectedly, and that catches you by surprise. It takes you in the throat. As we hear, we gather from time to time to bury our mothers and our fathers, our husbands and our wives, and our sons and our daughters, grandsons, granddaughters, friends, and family. Nothing so sure as death 
and taxes. Ah, but is there something even more certain than these? You know where we are and who we're talking to, so it's not surprising. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As Paul bridges at the beginning of chapter 8 of Romans from chapter 7, which he's had this incredible dialogue about how the things in his heart that he wants to be for Christ, he struggles to be, but says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Life and death. If there's anything more certain than death and taxes, it is the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and his promise that he is here right now to offer me, to offer you life. But it finds such deep meaning in the context that we experience such trouble and pain and suffering. And who better to stop and talk with than Job? Lord God, Bless us as we dig. Would you unpack some of what this warrior of faith whose life often looked messy, could you unpack some of his words and unpack your scripture? Could you cast some more dots and dashes across the windows of our world so that we see the traces of who you really are? And may we, as much as we wrestle and struggle and suffer in a world gone wrong, may we Catch a glimpse, catch a fragment of who you are. Hang on to this life-giving Lord Jesus Christ. Please come, be with us in your name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, um, I want to talk about life and death. We'll take a especially hard look at death through the words and the lens of Job. We've been into Job, so we're going to get going there. Job goes through, I'm going to call it three different stages, three distinct time periods in his, in his struggle over this. Now, the first thing you need, to, of course, you just to have a quick recap. Job, who is seen as a godly man, who is, uh, he's got a great reputation. He's a weighty individual in the community, and he's wealthy in both goods and with regard to his family. And as the story goes in Job chapter 1, messengers begin arriving. They start telling him about the fact that things, uh, all his stuff is destroyed. Uh, have you had that situation happen where your stuff is destroyed? destroyed? It doesn't have to be everything, just, just the right thing. I handed one, one, uh, one flight, I handed my computer to my wife, my laptop to my wife, uh, forgetting that it was in a case, forgetting that the case was not zippered closed. And so, Tom, the, the uh, felt lining, nice and, and smooth and protective, but also slippery as she took it from me, and now it's completely upside down and whew, right out the bottom or top of that case, and bam, on one of the kind of, I don't know if they're stanchions, legs, whatever they are, so it just hit smack on one of the legs of the chair of, in, the, in the plane in front of me. Oh, no! Do you have something valuable that's gotten nicked, dinged up, broken, stolen, lost, destroyed, just driving the back way home and, you know, our community's still not healed from the tornadoes of last April. It's one thing to have something destroyed when it's a thing. And by the way, God doesn't seem to begrudge us our pain even when our house is lost. It's amazing, this God of ours, how much he empathizes and feels what we feel and doesn't begrudge that in us. How much more so as Job learns and listens to the storytelling of the loss of every one of his children. Some parent here has buried their child. It's difficult. It's not normal. It's not right. And by the way, sometimes the things that we as Christians say to one another in those moments are not helpful. 
I stood beside a woman on the day we buried her 11-month-old little girl in a tiny pink casket. And as I stood beside her as she greeted, just trying to help support her as she wept, greeting parishioners, I can't tell you how it landed to hear a parishioner say, well, it was God's will. Oof. Maybe you've been told, have faith. Trust in God. These, they're true sentiments, aren't they? God does have a will that is being played out. He is somebody to put our faith in and he is trustworthy and all of this. But you know what? There is a challenge here that is going on. And so it's interesting to follow Job through a few stages in three parts. The first stage in three parts. Follow him what he does. In Job chapter 1 verses 18 and 19, the story comes flooding into his life of all the loss that he will be funeral after funeral after funeral. And then Job 1 verse 20, it says it this way. At this, the death of his children and the announcement of it, Job got up up and tore his robe and shaved his head. And I wonder if at that moment as somebody is saying, you know, just it's okay, don't cry. It's God's will to have had that woman pull an electric shaver out of a bag and just begin to shave her head. I don't think the pain she was going through could have in any way matched that one act. As Job shaves his head and tears his clothes and says, I am in absolute distress and mourning. And this we know. God approves of our mourning. Think about it. Firstly, I'll just share with you this. You know it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Those who don't mourn won't be comforted? I don't know. I think, though, it's fascinating because the, those beatitudes, we've often said, if you took blessed are they, you could take blessed and actually substitute pretty well in the Greek. You could substitute the word happy. Happy are those who mourn. This is mind kind of blowing the idea that you could be mourning and happy, but the comfort that comes with open mourning, we need to mourn loss. It is appropriate, even godly, to mourn. You know the story, uh, possibly because when you were a child and you were told, hey, you got to memorize a Bible verse, you found this one, you heard about it from one of your friends, you thought, oh, ha, ha, yeah, I got the one. It's going to be John chapter 11, verse 35, Jesus wept. Boom, done, got it, check. Do you know, of course, John chapter 11, this is the death and resurrection of Jesus' friend Lazarus. He has told them, and we're going to touch on this in a minute, he has told those folks, hey, look, my disciples, he is just asleep. It's not, you know, it's not a thing. We don't need to rush. Ah, uh, he's actually died and dead, and now he's there, and, and Mary and Martha and those who are gathered, they are, they are mourning, and Jesus weeps. Do you know what the next words are going to be out of Jesus' mouth according to John chapter 11? Roll away the stone. Time out. God himself, for someone he is minutes away from raising from the dead, when grief is racking their minds and hearts, Jesus stops and weeps. Blessed are they who mourn. As you go through the challenges of this world and the loss you inevitably are going to have to face. Know this. Step one of this stage one, mourn. Say it out loud. It is, a, it is appropriate to have a broken heart over the things that we have lost, and God knows your heart. He would even say through the words of Paul, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Your mourning is not silly. It's not an, a faithless act. It, in fact, is a part of what tunes us to the heart of God to mourn. 
And we understand, because of our view of what happens when a person dies, that there is, it is just bathed in hope, but that does not mean it's not painful. Well, second part of this, first stage, mourning. But then the 20th verse has a second part to it, and it says this, Then he fell to the ground in worship. In worship. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amidst my confusion, amidst my grief, and amidst my mourning, I worship the God who is in control of it all. I worship the God who created all things, the God who comes to save, the God who is in charge of the universe. I worship him these children of mine have been a gift in my life and they're gone now. I praise his name for what I have had. And that simple act of worshipful gratitude might change everything. Mourn. Worship. We gather with regularity and just right here somewhere in our community to bury, say goodbye to, and to mourn our loved ones. And we do so usually with a service that's built, if you didn't ever quite realize it, around the idea of worship. Proclaiming the goodness of God, the resurrection, and the life. That this, what happens in this casket now, is not simply about death. It is life and death. And it's as important as life and death. Amazingly, this third little part of stage one, we have mourning and we have worship. And then you read it before in the second chapter. Now, by this point, he has buried his loved ones and he now is riddled with sickness. It's the kind of sore-producing, painful sickness. People can see it. He's not, it's disgusting on some level. And he is just, he's just a wreck and he is a mess. And for all he knows, this is going to take his life. Amidst all of this in the second chapter of Job, friends come to try to give him encouragement and they find their way there in the 13th verse. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights and no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. This third part, and this is just the opening stage. Mourning, worship, and silence. If you're wondering... Whether it be that you are coming alongside someone in deep pain, I wonder if instead of that little quick kind of uh, faith t-shirt comment of, hey, it's the will of God, to that poor woman standing there, if they simply would have stood and wept. I'm pretty sure it would have meant more to her Put another way, if Jesus, like he was on that day with Mary and Martha, even though he was moments away from saying, Lazarus, come forth, Jesus would stand there and weep. Because he feels what you feel, he knows what we experience, and he realizes the devastation, and he enters it with us. But even if you are the person going through the pain, could it be that some moments of silence, listening for the voice of God, could be therapy, could be growth, could be sustenance? Well, Job goes through this stage one of his process around the death of his children, around his own sickness, and it includes these three things, mourning, worship, and silence. But he doesn't stop there. And this is, this is very typical. This happens all the time, I find. Many of us, and the gap is not always all that far apart, that we'd be in stage one and we head to stage two. And stage two really centers around searching and questioning. Our minds are built to collect all the data around puzzles, put them together, and make sense of them. We're not always right, but as soon as we have something that makes sense, we can't help ourselves. Maybe you've seen those little illustrations where, where uh, there's a paragraph that's written and they've dropped all of the vowels out of the words, but you can still read it. You can just keep going along, right? 
because it makes sense. It's also true, though, maybe you've seen this one, where there's a paragraph, and in fact, you're asked to count the number of times the word the is listed in this paragraph, and most everyone gets it wrong because they finish one line with the word the and start the next line with the word the, grammatically incorrect, They've now got the, the, back to back, but our minds make sense of the meaning even though it's wrong and we'll miss the number, right? We scramble to make sense of, we lock in on, well, why did this happen? Well, what about this? And maybe this happened and that's why it's happening. And that comes from God, this search, this intense desire to click things together. But it can turn difficult. It can turn problematic. And in fact, for many uh, that have left God, it's in these moments of pain and the searching that they've decided to turn and twist and move away. Job, you recall it here, Job chapter 3 and verse 1, chapter 2, we've just gotten through, and he's just gotten through this whole process of mourning and worship and silence, and then the first verse of chapter 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Incidentally, one of the messages of the book of Job, is, as it is in the book of Psalms, seems to be that the safe thing, even when we are off the beam theologically, or we are feeling an edge and frustration that comes out in just maybe even inappropriate anger, one of these safe guards, one of the safety nets is that we're going to God with it. And Job turns shouting to God, I wish I were never even born. In the 23rd chapter, we read some of this. Job lays out his great desire. You recall it in the third verse. If only I knew where to find him, if only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say. This is Job's basic point as he goes through this searching, questioning phase. Why is this happening? Now, by the way, he's not saying he's a sinless person. What he is saying is, look, when I see everything that has happened to me, it makes no sense that I deserve it. And the three friends are come uh, kind of rushing on in. Well, clearly, you did something. Just repent. You did something to deserve this. Repent, and God will deal with it, and it'll all be okay. It's clearly your fault. One of them goes on to say, you know what? Your children were sinful. It was their fault, their problem. Of course, we know from outside, pulled back, that this isn't quite right, what it is that these friends are saying. And Job is saying the same thing. I, I repent of, of, of all that is in my heart, and I repent of my wrongs, but this doesn't seem right. This doesn't doesn't seem fair. God, if you are doing to this to me, I, I need some answers. And to suspect that it's only Job that has ever been in that place is just wildly naive. There could so easily be somebody right in this room who right now, if they were honest, passed their suit and tie would have to tell you I don't even believe in God. I'm here because it's the thing that I do and my friends are here and I kind of go, but I don't believe because this has happened and I don't have an answer. His three friends, they're basically tumbling through their arguments against Job and then finally the fourth friend, Elihu, shows up and has something to share with Job. Elihu is younger, college students. Elihu showed up, the three friends are already there. They're older, they've got a little bit more, you know, gray hair going on and so what Elihu says at the beginning of his message is, you know what, I hung back, I took my time, I took my turn. You're older, you deserve the right, keep going, but I've been listening to you guys and man, you're fouling this thing up. Just can you, if you guys just don't mind quieting down for a second, Job, listen to me. And Elihu has a basic notion that he is sharing. It's subtle, it's interesting, and it may be something you have felt or been told. The summary statement for it is in Job 37, verse 23. We'll take a look at it here, and then we'll take a breakdown of a couple of its parts. He says this, the Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. Look, here's the thing, Job, you're asking questions you shouldn't be asking. You cannot get the answers to those questions. He's beyond our reach. And there's a little piece of this, which almost all of the really great myths have 
interesting truth embedded. But it rings a bit true because God in, in, in the 38th chapter is going to come to Job and as he comes, he comes in this storm and he says, hey Job, by the way, you're asking me all these questions. You want me to account for myself? I want to ask you a couple of questions. Where were you at the creation of the universe? Sounds like Elihu. Yeah, see, we can't know. He breaks it down a little bit further into two parts. In the 26th verse of the previous chapter, verse, chapter 36, he says it this way. How great is God beyond our understanding. The number of his years is past finding out. So problem number one, God is, and there's a word, inscrutable. In other words, you can't capture him. You cannot understand him. And again, we, we know that this, in, in part at least, is true. He's beyond our capture. But there's an implicit message. Job, you're trying too hard. You're asking impertinent questions. You're blaspheming in asking or suggesting God would answer you. He cannot be understood by you. There's a second part to it that comes up in the 19th verse of chapter 37. Tell us what we should say, Elihu says. Tell us what we should say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of our darkness. Well, the Bible talks about this idea of, a, of looking through a glass darkly, dimly, that it's just cloudy, or maybe into a mirror that's just a metal sheet and a state park bathroom, and you can't really see terribly clearly. He's saying, look, our darkness, we are in capable, we are incompetent to understand God. So you got these two problems. One, God's inscrutable. He's not somebody you could understand anyway. Number two, you're a little dense. So for these two reasons, you can't really know. And God is not bound to answer you. Do you know that this Elihu's argument winds its way through church fathers, writers of Christianity, through down to today, and there's a subtle problem with it. It's, it's, it's actually dramatically wrong. For God will say by the end of it, I'm a little bit angry with you three friends and Elihu for what you've said. And Job has said what is right of me. By the way, theologically, with some regularity, Job is saying stuff that's not quite right on. So what in the world could it be that he is saying that would actually be correct, that God would, in, in fact, congratulate? Well, whether it be Augustine or Karl, Karl Barth or Martin Luther, through the ages, they've all suggested a similar notion, and it is this. That you and I as Christians, we should be content not to know. That God cannot be known in that way. That he does not owe us an answer. And that, by the way, you're a little dense. Anyway. We just spent three weeks talking about the sanctuary. And one of the core messages of the sanctuary is that God wants to explain I want to tell you my story. And implicit in this story is the truth that I open myself to be prodded, poked, and looked at, tested, and judged. And you will find me righteous. It will take time. It will take perspective. But Job said the right thing. Oh, that I knew where he was. Oh, that he would come to me. Oh, that I could put my argument before him and I would see and hear what his response would be. Interesting that in that 38th chapter, the problem with Job is not that he wants to know. The problem is he's generally ignorant. Whereas some of these church followers, fathers and some of us in those moments that we share with one another can say, we really just need to be content not to know. In fact, what if it's the exact opposite that what Job models here is a discontent with not knowing. Doesn't mean you're going to know everything right away. I, I can see we've got quite a number of college students here. We've got, how many of you are professors at the university? Anybody professor in the university? Uh, I've been a professor in university. And uh, one of the things I've experienced are students in my class who do not know <laughs> and think they do. 
I've also experienced individuals who do not know and do not want to know. And then I've experienced those who do not know and are hungry to know. And that is the student I came for. And God says, Job is the one who gets it. He's hungry to know. Sometimes even the, in this circumstance, the unknowable, there's a book. Jim's right here in the front row. I'm going to try to keep him, try to keep, he's the one who shared with me this book. It includes some stuff about Job and others, but it's called, the book is called God of Sense and Traditions of Nonsense by a gentleman named Tonstead, and he says this, quote, the problem is not that the human desire to know exceeds God's disclosure policy, but that humans take a dim interest in knowing. Despite his ignorance, despite what he had wrong, what God is saying at the end is, oh, thank you that Job is here and wants to know. And some of what I have to teach and tell him will take way more than this one class period. But he has what I need in my children, a hunger to know. And so we make our way to the third of these stages. Stage one, mourning and worship and silence. Stage two, it can be really, really messy, questioning and searching. But if our questioning and searching, like the psalmists, like Job, are pointed at and directed at God, God says, oh, that's exactly right. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I want. In your struggle over what you're going through, go to him. That's the right place to go. And in the midst of it, I'll just give you this little foreshadowing. The third stage is that of revelation. In part, another piece, revelation. So I'd like to just uh, share with you some revelations that I'll couch in this notion of the theology of death. I think it might, as we talk about life and death, as we talk about death, it's helpful to grapple with some of what we can know here in the midst of all of the unknown. And so uh, hang with me, if you will. Job, first book we understand to be written in the Bible, the oldest book of the Bible, Job says some interesting things about death. In fact, in the 11th verse of the third chapter, why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Now, this is a part of his it's just grief-stricken ramblings of what he wants to ask God about that this he's going through all of this. But check out his, his theology around death in the next couple of verses. In verse 13, for now I would be what? I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest. So if you have struggles in your understanding of the subject of death, Christians should be well equipped to have a grasp on what otherwise would create so much fear. And the first piece is that death is not God's punishment on us. It is a part of a natural law. In Genesis chapter 2, God said, there's a tree, don't eat of it. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. You know what happens in Genesis chapter 3. So the question is, and this is the interesting push-pull, what God says versus what the devil says. What the devil says is that God wants to keep you down, that God isn't to be trusted, that God will kill you. That's what's going on here. He's going to come after you now, right? You, you sinned, you had a problem, so now he's coming after you. But in fact, the story of the problem of sin is that the sin carries with it a natural law and a part of the natural consequence that, you know, if I take this mask and I let go of it here, I've just been astute enough to know what the natural law dictates will happen next. I don't have to do anything about it. God, who I would assume created this natural law, doesn't have to rush down here and push my mask to the ground, does he? No. There's a law there. He doesn't have to do anything about it. I'm just as responsible in letting go of this mask as God is in that moment. Because I know the natural law. And what he's trying to say to his children is the natural law. Sin is a separation from God who is life. Anybody here have your computer that you thought you had plugged in, but it was plugged into the computer, but at the wall you had accidentally unplugged it at some point, and it's not plugged in, and down it drains all the way down until finally it goes completely dead, and then it doesn't matter. You can plug it back into the wall, and it's going to take a while for it to come back to life, right? And God says, you are unplugging from life. 
in the choice of sin, a natural result will be death, in fact. This comes up in a variety of ways. And I'd like to just take a look at some of these. Romans chapter 6, we're very familiar with this notion. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But as we begin to suspect that this is tipping off a, a, an idea of a natural law, check out the verses right before it, which we don't always go to. Verse 21, what benefit did you reap at that time from those things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. Again, you could read that in the kind of way that says the result of those things is that God has to come down and smack you down. But as you start to suspect and start to play out this idea of a natural law, it makes better and better sense. Verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. So it is life or it is death and it is a natural law between sin and righteousness. This, this is kind of clarifying in James chapter 1. You can read around it as well, but the 15th verse says this. Then, after desire has conceived, using a metaphor of childbirth, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Again, this imagery is that sin naturally leads to death. It is the seed that in full form is death. That no, no God coming in here to make it be death. So God warns us, this unplugging, this separating, this sin, it is death. It is a natural law. It isn't that God has to do something to us. And so, again, we read in Romans 8, 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. I plugged in through the law of life. The law of life is I'm plugged into the source and now I have life through the spirit. But that same law, if it's unplugged, that's the law of sin which leads to death. Make sense? This theology of death. In fact, in Isaiah 59, but your iniquities have separated you from God, separating you from God. Additionally, not only is death um, <clears throat> have a natural law consequence from sin, additionally, the Bible talks about two types of death. It's as if to say, you know, there's dead and then there's dead dead. We've talked about this in the past. So that Jesus would describe certain individuals as dead, but not, I mean, they're sleeping. That's not dead, dead. We get some view of this from Revelation chapter 2 in the 11th verse where Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. The implicit idea is if there's a second death, there's a first death, right? And so the differences between these do you remember what Job said? If I had not been born or if I were still born, I would now be sleeping with my fathers. That's a common phrase in the Old Testament. We see it in 1 Kings. It's talked about the kings that were often referred to in this way. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the same kind of thing will be said about Solomon and king after king after king. They slept in this first death. Jesus uses the same kind of language. In Matthew chapter 9, a ruler comes up and says, hey, my daughter is dying or dead. And Jesus goes and he sees this little girl and he, gets, and he says this, this to them in the 23rd verse. Go away. The girl is not dead but asleep. Well, I mean, she's dead. She's just not dead dead. Right? She's, she's asleep. She's on Pause. This isn't the story. This is the chapter. And I've got this covered, and Jesus raises her from the dead. Or in John chapter 11, these confusing, otherwise confusing words. And you see this littered throughout Scripture. John chapter 11, and Jesus will say in the 11th verse, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And the disciples are going, Well, if he's asleep, why would you go to wake him up? That's actually probably really helpful for him to sleep since he's had all kinds of problems, maybe fever or whatever. And so his fever's broken, probably. Why would we go to wake him up? And finally, Jesus has to say, Okay, so no, he's dead. But he's not dead, dead. He's, he's asleep. He's, he's dead, the kind of the, the sleep, the temper. It's the first death, you see. And I'll go and I will wake him up. I will call out his name and he will come forth. 
You know the words from Ecclesiastes chapter 9, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They are asleep. But there is also a second death. And Jesus refers to it in some interesting language and then experiences it himself. He's the only one that we would understand or believe has experienced the second death. And he talks about the death of the body, like Lazarus and the little girl went through, and like Job will go through. But he talks then about the death of the soul. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane as he is trying to choose his path forward and he is just pausing for a minute with God the Father and he says, Lord, if this cup could pass from me. As he describes what's going on, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And the one person ever goes through not just death but dead, dead death. And it's a little confusing to us as we try to understand it, but in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or in Hebrews 2, verse 9, but we see Jesus who made, was made a little lower than the angels as a human being, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. How could you say that? There are all kinds of people who have already died. No, 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 I'm not, talking about, I'm not talking about sleep. I'm not talking about that kind of dead. I'm talking about dead, dead. He experienced the fullness. And so, death is a natural law. There is a first and a second death, and Jesus Christ has paid the price, has already. We talked about it last week and before. So this third stage includes... As you recall, it starts out with stage one is worship, preceded by mourning and followed by silence. And then the second stage is questioning and, and searching. And then this final stage is revelation and restoration. In fact, God comes to Job, and Job will be satisfied even though he still got questions. Because I know now God will come to me. This is going to be an ongoing conversation with this God of mine. My hunger to know him, he likes that too. And the Bible says, at the end, <clears throat> that he is understanding something more. You recall it, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we talk about this. There's a revelation that you and I should capture on this subject. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. So comfort one another with these words. You understand the difference. As you go through your suffering and understand your pain, you know the difference between being dead and being dead dead, and you should know that for those who follow the Christ of the cross and the empty tomb, he is bringing life, and he sits here with you today. And he would say, I am the living one who was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and hold the keys of death and hell itself. I've got the keys. Have you lost your keys anytime recently? It could be a desperate flurry of activities that follow. There could be marginal blaming of spouses and others in the house. The searching and researching of all the places you would have expected them to be. I uh, recently owned a truck, and uh, when I had the truck, I had a hitch that I would put on it, and it had a pin uh, that you could use, but I bought one that has a lock on it, so nobody could actually take the pin out and release whatever that was hitched and steal it, but in fact, they'd have to, you know, cut through this lock. I have, so I have this lock on there, but I lost the key to the hitched lock with it off. So now it's not usable. And I could not find the key, could not find the key, could not find the key. And Jesus shows up and says, I am the key to life and death. And I want to be known by you. And so I needed to be sure I knew where the key was. <laughs> so you know what I did? I put it in the lock. And I left it there. So I would know. Could have trouble in the future when I use it again, take the key out, 
put it onto a truck or something else and take the key because I want to be safe about it. But right now I know exactly where the key is because it's in the lock and Jesus says, hey, I want to be in your heart. I want to be the key, the key to life and to death, all that you understand and what you do not understand and a growing revelation of who I am. And beyond that, I plan to restore to you what has been taken and from, for different ones of us, that means different things. But some of us have been robbed and riddled by a life gone wrong. By a childhood at the hands of an abuser. By the loss of a spouse. By shame in the workplace. By a phone call with a diagnosis. Or burying your children. And Jesus says... I want to be known as the key for all of this. And he will say to Job and to these four friends, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So, Job has. So much of what he said was not quite right, but the most important thing, his desire to be known and to know me, that we would come together, that I would meet with... He's dead on. And in the 12th verse, it says, what is incomprehensible, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. And as I read that, I cannot help but kind of play through the fact that if I lost any of my children, it would not matter how many more I had. That could not possibly be replaced. But I wonder if maybe Job isn't scrolling forward in the future and saying, I'm not talking about the middle, I'm talking about the end. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. You know, it's all fine and dandy to have a great start, but God says, I'm going to bless the latter portion of your life far more than anything that's been stolen or taken from you for living in a world gone wrong, not my fault, as I'm willing for you to see. But I will save you and I will restore you. And those of us who understand this Jesus that Job encountered, we live a life completely different than the rest of the world. As a musician comes up to play a little bit of piano, I'm just going to share with you. I, I stumbled upon an article I want to just tell you about. In the Review and Herald from 2015, sorry, March 27, 2015, an individual there, <clears throat> uh, Calvin Kim, wrote a little short article and what he had done is he'd been reading uh, a book that had some last words of different individuals on their deathbed, the things that people had said, check some of these out. Reports that Thomas Paine, who is a famous atheist and writer who wrote the book The Age of Reason, died in 1809 and apparently shared these words on his deathbed. Stay with me for God's sake, quote, I cannot bear to be left alone. Oh, Lord, help me. Oh, God, what have I done to suffer so much? What will become of me hereafter? I would give worlds if I had them that the age of reason had never been published. Oh, Lord, help me. Christ, help me. No, don't leave. Stay with me. Send even a child to stay with me, for I'm on the edge of hell here alone. If ever the devil had an agent, I have been that one. And then you compare in the older woman whispering voice as she whispers on her deathbed in 1915 to her son, Ellen White, says this, I know in whom I have believed. The difference, remarkable, palpable. Sir Thomas Scott, a atheist, Chancellor of England in the 1500s in 1594 passed away and on his deathbed is supposed to have said this until this moment I thought there was neither a God nor a hell now I know and feel that there are both and I am doomed to perdition by the just judgment of the Almighty contrasted with Patrick Henry who is a Christian politician and lawyer and communicator who said this doctor I wish you to observe how real and beneficial the religion of Christ is to a man about to die. David Livingston, a missionary, would say this, build me a hut to die in, I am going home. Famed Satan worshiper, writer of the Satanic Bible, Anton Levy 
died in 1997 and is supposed to have said on his deathbed, oh my, oh my, what have I done? There is something very wrong. Or then there's the missionary to Sri Lanka, then Ceylon and other parts of the world. Adoniram Judson, who in 1850 said it this way, I go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. I feel so strong in Christ. Or John Lythe, a Baptist missionary, tell them I die happy in Jesus. And if Job had a deathbed statement, I wonder if it wouldn't be what we find in the 19th chapter when he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, that in the end he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God and I myself will see him with my own eyes. Oh, so much I don't know, but I know this. My Redeemer lives. Or in the words of Paul, therefore now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free, took over and canceled out the law of sin and its natural consequence of death. So this is all about life and death, but oh, don't get too swallowed up in the death part. The death of this first life is all a part of the promise of a God who says, I come to restore you. And if you've made your way into these seats or are listening and watching right now and you've not given your heart to the Jesus who has life, I just, I just ask, I plead with you, stop, just stop. You're going to suffer in this world because it is a world gone chaotically wrong in sin. But God has a plan. And he weeps with us when we mourn. He receives our worship because he is the creator God. He is also the restorer, recreator God. And he comes, he sits beside me, beside you to redeem us now. And he wants to be known by me. Lord God. We've been winding our way through a wide range of topics and your desire to be known, it comes through in the sanctuary. Your, your, your desire to save, it comes through these pages of Job, through your sacrifice. It, Lord God, your power over death itself, even though we will live in an uncertain time and even die. this gospel of salvation, the Redeemer, the one who holds the keys, somebody here right now has gotten a little far from you, has lost track of the keys to life itself. And you come, you sit with us, you are here. May we place that key. Please, Lord God, push that key into the lock of our hearts. Free us from all the doubt and the struggle. And give us, even though Job didn't understand fully what all was going on, he would then proclaim the goodness of God that he came. God came to me. God, you would say of Job, he said of me what is right. Lord, keep speaking into our hearts for anyone right now who's here who feels distant from you. We lay claim to the promise that as they simply say, Lord Jesus, come, come into my heart I lay down my life to you I repent and while I go through things that don't feel fair I understand that they are not because you are trying to beat me up but in fact you are in the midst of saving me from all of this and so Lord God we submit ourselves to you and we ask that you carry us through this week saved and safe in you, ever growing in our understanding of who you are. You are far more than we can capture, and we are a bit dim, but Lord God, thank you for the promise that you want to be known. In fact, in the words of Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 14, where you say, I will be found by you. Lord, we claim it. So bless this, your family. Each of us, no matter where we are in our journey with you, come to us, walk with us, and may we 
walk through our days in this next week in this community expressing the incredible character of Jesus Christ. Amen.